Hi, it's Jamie. And I'm Portia. And we are Just Two Pearls. Join us for Adventures in Pearls. A reflection from James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. The paradox of a crucified Savior lies at the heart of the Christian story. That paradox was particularly evident in the first century when crucifixion was recognized as the particular form of execution reserved by the Roman Empire for insurrectionists and rebels. It was a public spectacle accompanied by torture and shame, one of the most humiliating and painful deaths devised by human beings. That Jesus died this way required special explanation. It made no rational or even spiritual sense to say that hope came out of a place called Golgotha, a place of the skull. For the Jews of Jesus' time, the punishment of crucifixion held special opprobrium, given their belief that anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Thus, St. Paul said, that the word of the cross is foolishness to the intellect and a stumbling block to established religion. The cross is a paradoxical religious symbol because it inverts the world's value system with, that, with the news that hope comes by way of defeat, that suffering and death do not have the last word, and that the last shall be first and the first last. Thus ends the reflection. Mm, the cross and the lynching tree. Jamie, that sounds very, very, very Good Friday-like. And that mm-hmm. is today. Today yes. is Good Friday. And so because it's Good Friday, Jamie, I have to share an adventure that um, deals with church, okay? So we all know um, I am a youth pastor and so, um, who recently just celebrated a birthday? Ow! So, um, and on my birthday was the was the march was the march for our lives march, and of course, you know, as a youth pastor, I invited um, the teens to join me in the march. But that's not what I'm going to talk about. I'm not going to talk about the march. I'm actually going to talk about this youth lock-in that we had for them. So, we had a lock-in, Jamie, and y'all, let me tell you. I, honestly, a lock-in was not something that I have ever done before. My mother says that I've done it when I was a little kid, and I was like, I did not, because I wasn't the person who would sleep anywhere. So I think she might be referring to my sister. But in any case, so we had a youth lock-in at our church, and we had a, almost 30 teens, and y'all, these children, these teens thought that they were going to sleep. And I was like, no, we're not going to go to sleep. We're going to be up all night. And sure enough, when um, they thought they were going to sleep and they realized that adults are going to be in the room with them, they're like, oh, wait a minute, we're actually not going to go to sleep because y'all adults are in here. And it's like, duh, I told y'all, we're not leaving y'all alone to go to sleep. So here's the thing about teenagers. Teenagers either want to do one of two couple of things. They either want to have conversation, they want to do activity, or they just want to chill. And so we had a little bit of all of that in one space. I had a group of people who wanted to talk and have conversation. I had a group of people who just wanted to chill. And then I had that group of people who wanted a bunch of activities. And so as a youth pastor, I had to heavily rely on my team. And y'all, I have an all-star team of youth servant leaders who are just the bomb.com. So shout out to all of them. They are the bomb. 
I learned so much about myself. Um, it was one of those opportunities and those moments where I said, you know what, this is something I've never done before, so I'm not looking to make it perfect. I'm looking to do it well and to not have any accidents along the way. Now, granted, that's not the high bar of expectation, but I did have a team who was solid and just the ideas and the plans. Of course, things don't always go as we originally planned on our page because I'm like a serial planner where I kind of like have this plan like, okay, this is what we're going to do. But some things didn't happen the way that we anticipated. But we made it through the night. We didn't have any issues or any major problems. And so for that, I was very grateful. And I was grateful because in the night, we did have some conversation and some discussion about Parkland and the mass shootings and gun laws. We had some conversation around marijuana and legalization of marijuana and decriminalization of marijuana. We also had some conversation about knowing your worth, your value, your calling, your passions. What is God calling you to do and what are you good at? I was grateful to hear their voices and to hear them talk about the things that they're passionate about. I was grateful that they were willing to give me feedback on what we could do differently next year and how they have ideas. I was even grateful just to see them laughing and them playing basketball and them being teenagers, doing each other's eyebrows and plucking out each other's baby hairs. I was grateful to see them playing things like taboo or trying to cut a rug to Drake's God's promise. No, not God's promise, God's plan. See, just right there. That shows you that I'm old already, 28 and old. I don't even know what they're doing these days. So I'm calling Drake's songs God's promise when it's actually called God's plan. <laughs> but in any case, um, overall, I had a really great time. I enjoyed watching them, and I enjoyed fellowshipping with them and talking to them because it was really one of my first major moments with the teens. I spent a lot of time with those who are under 12, specifically on Sundays because I lead um, kind of like a youth church with them. And so it was a great time for me to spend time with the teens for more than just an hour or two hours at a time, but literally for 12 hours. And though it was exhausting, it was also exhilarating. Though it wasn't perfect and everything that we may have planned may have, didn't go to plan, but at the end of the day, I know that there's hope. I know that they're thirsty, and I know that there's a generation of young people who's ready. But we've got to be willing to do the work and to share the love with them, to know that they're heard, to know that they have something to say, and that they're awesome. And so I just want to share that adventure with y'all about my very first lock-in. And so I'm grateful and thankful that it happened. Yes. That's very cool, and I'm glad that you were able to have that experience with your youth, and I'm sure they were very happy to have such a a cool uh, youth pastor talking about God's promise and God's plan and whatever the name of the song is. <laughs> and, girl, you are exactly right. Like, I don't know what happened. We've been talking about this the past couple of weeks. Like, getting over 25, all of a sudden, you're like, I am not cool anymore. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, it's okay to not be cool. But, you know, I got compliments on things like my nails or, oh, my God, we love your lipstick. And, wow, like, you have so much to say and, like, you actually are pretty funny. And so they thought my jokes were hilarious. Um, so that was interesting. So, I mean, I'm, I think I'm a cool youth pastor, but at the same time it's like I'm cool to them because I'm closer to their age than the other mm -hmm. leaders. And, mm -hmm. But I'm still an adult, you know, I'm an adult working through my stuff, and they know it, and they are, 
you know, know that I'm transparent and that I'm open and that I'm here for them. And at the end of the day, I'm there almost every day with my door open waiting for them and serving them, and they know that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm grateful, yeah. Yeah, and I think one thing that we – a mistake, I think, that we make as adults, I'm talking about young adults our age all the way on up to older adults, is this idea that the youth need someone, like, super cool and hip to go talk to them. And, like, they are super clear that someone who's over 25 is not their age. Like, they're super clear on that. Like, who do we think we're fooling? You're going to send in some 30-year-old in tight jeans, and all of a sudden they think that's an 18-year-old? They don't. However, I think what youth really want, to your point, um, yeah, they want somebody who they can relate to. That's important. But more importantly, they need to know that they can trust you, that you're dependable, and that you care about them, right? Like, they need to know that the love is there, right? Because people have, you know, and I've seen it, um, you know, from my own church work, I can put an 80-year-old in the classroom, right? But it's, it's about the kids. Yes, they have to find a way in to relate with that person. That's true. But they also just have to know that that person loves them and cares them and wants to get to know them, right? And, like, that's the most important thing. And I think for anyone who wants to work with children or youth or who is concerned about children or youth today, I would say just start from a place of caring and love and not from a place of, like, oh, I need to be cool and hip. Like, everyone's going to see right through that. Be yourself and just show them that you care about them. I think that's the most important thing that we can do. So today is Good Friday, and so we have a special guest, um, and our guest is Quadri P. Harris, who is one of our bow ties. If you listened to our first show of the season, you got to meet our four bow ties, and uh, Quadri is one of those guys. Um, what did we talk to Quadri about, Portia? So we talked to Quadri actually about a number of things from the cross and the lynching tree, which Jamie shared earlier in our reflection. We talked about um, redemptive suffering and what does that mean and what does that look like and why why that is such an important conversation to have when we're discussing liberation theology, such as black liberation theology and womanist theology. The, the, womanist theology. Jesus, help my words today. Womanist theology. Oh, yes, God. Okay. So, y'all, I'm tongue-tied because I got a priest today, so y'all going to have to forgive me. <laughs> but in any of that, um, we had a great conversation with Quadri on all of those things. And we even discussed with Quadri about what's good with Good Friday. Like, what's the hope in Good Friday? And so this is our second Good Friday show um, that we kind of talked about. Last year we kind of did some Lenten resurrection show on last year. And so this time we're also kind of continuing that conversation on for those who may or may not know what Good Friday is or what Lent is. And so we know that Lent is the season where we journey with Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness where he's tempted. But there's so much more to that conversation, and there's so much more to that dialogue. And so we go through 40 days in the wilderness to kind of lead up to this point where we see Jesus at the cross, not just at the cross, but on the cross. And we see the women at the cross. You know, I had to do a shameless plug for our, for our women and our sister kin, uh, Jamie. And so we were there with our Savior, and we're having a conversation on what does that mean and what does that look like. And so I'm really excited to get into this conversation. Hey, Pearls. Today we are here with one of our distinguished bow ties, Mr. Quadri P. Harris. Quadri is finishing up in his third year at Yale Divinity School, which is Portia and my alma mater, Divinity School alma mater, that is. He studies black liberation theology, and as we are here 
on these final days of the season of Lent. Today is Good Friday. We are so blessed to be sharing with our brother, Quadri, today. So we are so excited to have him on the show. Hey, Quadri. How are y'all doing, ladies? I am exceedingly humbled and appreciative to be joining you on this day. Um, I'm a big fan of Just Two Pearls. I listen frequently, including I think I tagged you in a Facebook post a few weeks ago. I actually listen uh, to the podcast when I'm uh, in the gym. It keeps me in a uh, peaceful mood when I tend to get a little bit aggressive on those weights. So I'm glad (laughs) to be here. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. So uh, before we get into what we have you here to talk about today, uh, why don't you tell us how your final semester at Yale Divinity School is shaping up? Oh, yeah. Well, these uh, past two and a half, going on three years at YDS, um, at certain times they have seemed to fly by, and then at other times they have seemed to have been a really long and tedious grind. And frankly, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that this last semester is falling into the category of being a long and tedious grind. Um, you know, just frankly, I'm, I'm, you know, having a hard time uh, staying uh, motivated, seeing the finish line so close, and, f- like, finding that drive that I've had in previous sem- semesters that uh, propelled me uh, to do the very important work that I think I'm vested in that hopefully we get a chance to talk about on this week's episode, but uh, I'm doing my best uh, staying in dialogue with mentors and uh, colleagues and uh, great scholars like yourself that have gone ahead of me to try to find that motivation so um, I avoid the dreaded senioritis and not burn out because uh, that's a really, it's, it's a real problem that I've found that many of us are having in this last semester. So trying my best to finish strong and not uh, be too lazy in these last few months. Awesome. Quadri as two women who have been on the side that you are currently on but have now crossed over to the other side. Um, In the spirit of the pending resurrection, we know that there is life on the other side. And so uh, we just want to encourage you just to keep at it. And that senior slug (laughs) struggle is so real. Um, But you can make it and you will make it and you will graduate and you will graduate well. And so that's to everyone in this season, all of our seniors who are getting ready to prepare to graduate, um, just hold on. You know, it is the end of March, which means April is around the the corner, which means May is just after that. So y'all got this. Amen. Amen. And so today is Good Friday. And so, Quadri, we know that you have such a passion um, for a text that we want to get into um, at some point on this conversation, but the cross in the lynching tree with James Cone. We know that you are a James Cone um, enthusiast in terms of your work, in terms of black liberation theology and womanist uh, theology, so overall liberation theologies. <laughs> and But before we get there, what is this Good Friday? And what's good with Good Friday? And what is Lent? We know that Lent is this liturgical season but and we go through this this phase this period called Holy Week and kind mm-hmm. of rounding off Holy Week we know to be Good Friday before we get to Holy Saturday. But what's good with Good Friday? You know what is this whole Lenten journey, this Lenten struggle that we are seeing and that we are leading up to this day? What is it? All right, let's start at the beginning. Um, as you said, uh, studying Black theology and Black liberationist theology is a um, major focus of what I do in school, and I would be well, one of my professors, um, Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman, would 
uh, slap me over the head. Figuratively speaking, of course, if I did not mention that womanist theology, theologies, I would say, is the pinnacle of black liberationist theologies. It's the completion of black liberation theologies, and without it, um, black liberation theology frankly fails without the womanist lenses and the womanist voices um, dominating those conversations as they, as they have um, in previous decades. Um, and I'm going to get to that in a little bit when I make my comments about uh, what's good about Good Friday. But as far as the Lenten season goes, um, w- the way I understand it is it's those 40 days um, of Jesus' journey leading towards the end of his life and earthly ministry. Um, it's typically for us Christians a period of intense fasting, um, uh, more of an attentive paying attention to our prayer lives, um, thinking and reflecting deeply on suffering and what it means, particularly for those of us that identify with black Christian traditions, what does it mean uh, for black people to suffer in the context of the U.S. or uh, globally as well, and what does the Christian message have to say to this suffering? What does the fact that the man that we proclaim to be our Lord and Savior uh, suffered in many of the similar ways that we continue to find ourselves suffering and uh, suffering now in this world today? Um, so the Lenten journey, as I see it, is an opportunity to become closer with God, not necessarily um, by subjecting ourselves to suffering, but to reflect on what it is that we can learn in the midst of this suffering when it often happens not on our own terms and not on our own accord. As far as Good Friday, so um, being informed by one of the first uh, generation womanist theologians and ethicists, um, none other than the wonderful Dolores S. Williams, um, coming out of Union Theological Seminary. I take a rather, I would consider it an unorthodox approach um, when it comes to Good Friday and even the crucifixion and um, the dominant Western atonement theory, which typically says that Good Friday was necessary um, for Christian salvation, um, Christ being offered as this unblemished, perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. Um, personally, I don't necessarily buy that argument. Um, I, I think it's highly problematic for us to assert that an all-powerful and all-loving God required the execution of God's own son in order to reconcile God's self back to humanity. Um, I think what necessarily follows from that argument is that God necessitates violence, particularly violence against vulnerable people, as Jesus was um, when he lived on earth. Um, And I think another issue with that is the fact uh, which – Dr. Williams argued for us, what does that have to say to um, black communities and black women specifically uh, when we make it a theological ideal for people to have to suffer in order to be like Jesus? And we lift that up as something that we should aspire to. 
it makes Jesus the ultimate surrogate figure, and then it ends up um, privileging and prioritizing the suffering specifically as black women, uh, the suffering of black women as something that should be celebrated. Um, and that's, I'm not interested in making theological statements about God that fall into that trajectory. So the way I approach um, Good Friday, if you will, is um, it's a little bit controversial, but I look at the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus being the ultimate stumbling block or hurdle, if you will, for the mission um, that Christ came to fulfill on earth, that mission being showing us a way to live where we human beings can be, can be in reconciliation with each other and with God as the ground and the source of our being. Um, and the, the way I see it in line with Dr. Williams's theology is um, the cross was the human manifestation of all of the evil that was trying to stomp that vision out. Um, and it was ultimately overcome in the resurrection. Okay, so then with that in mind, um, then how do we make sense of not only black women suffering, which I think is like so often overlooked and just like not even seen in our society, but all of the suffering of all the marginal people, right? Like yeah. so we think about um, sex workers, we think about, um, you know, third world women, we think about women of color around the world, we think about like, still just think about black people, right? Like, yeah. so then, you know, so, so Jesus Christ um, in the crucifixion is this, like overturning this last stumbling block. But like, how in the midst of that are we making sense of just even like these past, past what is it, just a year that this current regime <laughs> has yeah, been in yeah. office? Like, how do we make sense of just all that's happening right now? The way I like to answer the question about suffering in Christian theology is I, I, I say I pull a both and move. And in one hand, I, I don't think suffering, particularly the suffering of the innocent um, as afflicted upon the innocent and the vulnerable and the oppressed by people in power, I don't think it makes any sense at all. And what I mean by that is I don't think there is anything redemptive about it. I don't think it's necessary. I think it's completely absurd, and it is not in line with the will of God. Um, again, going back to uh, my reverence for uh, Dr. Dolores Williams in that classic womanist text, Sisters in the Wilderness, um, it's really difficult for me to ever make the theological statement that God needs our suffering in order for us to be reconciled with God. So in that sense, I would say the suffering doesn't make sense. However, what makes sense about it, not to say that it's redemptive, but what I would argue is that when we live or at least when we aspire to live um, the type of life that Jesus lived as uh, mapped out for us in the canonical Gospels, we are going to confront um, forces of evil that govern this world. Um, and those forces of evil, as they were back then, as they still exist today, I'm speaking um, concretely about forces of evil like sexism, uh, like racism, like uh, homophobia and transphobia and xenophobia, all of these isms, I would absolutely um, consider sinful structures and evil structures. And when we try to follow Jesus, um, 
it almost necessitates us to be in conflict with those structures. And um, those structures often respond violently to the people and the forces that are um, opposing them. And that's where I think most of the suffering comes from. You know, some I've made this uh, pick to other Christian theologians as well, my contemporaries, and um, they would argue that I'm trying to have it both ways, um, where in one hand I'm trying to make sense of something that I say makes absolutely no sense, and I think that's a valid critique, um, but I think that's the best I can do with it at this time, particularly because I'm trying to avoid um, making the theological claim that God intends or necessitates um, this type of innocent suffering. Yeah. I, I, too, struggle sometimes with this idea of the redemptive suffering um, because I sometimes find it hard when I also believe that God also calls us to, a, to an account that we should flourish as human beings and that we should thrive, <laughs> you know. And, but I also, in, in that same regard, I also have to consider historically the Jewish context that, Jew, that Jesus is coming from and what it means for them to sacrifice and to literally have bloodshed for atonement. And so mm-hmm. there's that wrestling, right? So there's my post-resurrection, like, why did it have to be like that, <laughs> you know? And, but then there's that pre, and it's like, but this, this is the way that we understand that sacrifice and the washing of sins happen. And so my question is, how do we reconcile those narratives of this was the way of the society in that time, and this was historically was the practice? And so what does it then look like for Jesus to take on the choice, even though he didn't want to, right? And so if we look at Monday, Thursday, and we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he did not want to do this, but he still made the choice to say, okay, I'm going to go through with this. Or did he even, or did he choose? So that's another point of wrestling too. Did Jesus really choose or was he just like, all right, I'm just just going to go through with this. Um, And so my question to you, Quadri, is how do we reconcile um, these narratives and how do we do that, that we um, now in the 21st century living in 2018 going through it, how do we in our own struggles, in our own stuff, in our own problems, looking at things like, uh, the mass shootings and looking at things uh, around the world with uh, hurricanes and these storms, and we see people literally suffering. How do mm-hmm. we uh, reconcile all of that? Yeah, that, that's a phenomenal question that I think any of us that are constantly in, engaged in theological dialogue uh, constantly have to deal with. The way I tend to deal with it is by employing something um, that classic to um, most black liberationist traditions and definitely uh, most womanist scholars uh, with regard to um, engaging with the Bible, which is our holy text, right? Um, And that's, which I'm sure uh, you brilliant scholars are privy to as well, that's the hermeneutic of suspicion. Um, And what I mean by that is anytime I'm, before I even pick up the biblical text, right, I'm going into, and this is, you know, we all approach anything that we read, anything we pick up with a particular um, lens, a particular social location that we're coming from. And we bring just as much of ourselves into the reading of the text as the text itself, right? 
So uh, for me, being informed by black liberationist theologies, womanist theologies, I'm going in with that hermeneutic of suspicion. And for me, it's any passage of scripture, um, any scriptural ideal, any biblical ideal um, that makes room for black suffering being necessary. Um, I, how you say, I'm looking at it with a side eye. And I'm even uh, ready to go as radical to say that um, those ideas or even those scriptural passages are not sacred for me. Um, and I think um, one of the best examples of this I've ever found and encountered in black theology um, came from the classic text, Jesus and the Disinherited, um, where Howard Thurman um, talks about how his grandmother, who was born into slavery, would not allow him to read any of the Pauline epistles other than 1 Corinthians 13, you know, that great um, ode to love, if you will. Other than that, Paul wasn't sacred for her, um, specifically because of uh, the pro-slavery passages, uh, you know, that you see in uh, the Deuteropauline letters and in the book of Philemon as well. Um, so with this idea of suffering being necessary in the ancient Jewish context uh, that Jesus was born into, um, with that hermeneutic of suspicion that I employ, I'm always looking at Scripture, realizing that it emerged out of a context that is not necessarily our context right now. And many times I think uh, we Christians get ourselves in trouble um, when, with more orthodox strands of our theology, we try to privilege and prioritize um, the situation, uh, the biblical, historical, and political, and theological situation over and against our own. Um, and then that, maybe this is a strong word, I'll probably get some pushback from this from other of my contemporaries, but in that primitive context of Scripture, it was an accepted, almost unquestioned notion that God required a blood sacrifice, um, normally an animal sacrifice, in order to appease God, in order to avoid the wrath of God for sins committed. Um, and I think that's made our way, made its way into contemporary black Baptist churches. Like I remember growing up and I'll still probably hear it um, this lynching season as well. Like we used to sing this hymn back in my churches. We don't have to slay the lamb anymore. We don't have to put the blood on the door. Someone has taken the place of the lamb and he is the great I am. So there's a lot of, uh, theological moves happening in that hymn right there, right, where you see Jesus being equated uh, to uh, Yahweh as revealed to Moses in Sinai. And then that, that blood sacrifice as the lamb sparing the children of Israel from the wrath of God that came um, in the final plague in Egypt, right? Um, these things, I think, the way I see it with my black uh, liberationist uh, hermeneutic of suspicion uh, were primitive ideas that were not only unique to the ancient Jewish context, but most of the religious traditions of the ancient Near East. And frankly, um, I don't necessarily think that they're, they, they should be um, seen as an essential component of uh, the modern church, particularly because of its implications for uh, black lives and black suffering. In this moment in which we are seeing um, students of, of all races, but mostly a priority on uh, white students in certain communities marching for their lives, um, in which we are seeing the Me Too movement, in which we're seeing the continuation of the Black Lives Matter movement, 
Um, what do you think the message um, of the cross is for us in this particular moment in which we're living, and where can we find hope? So what I like to say about the message of the cross um, and making it relevant to these times, like when we see, especially, you know, with issues that uh, Black Lives Matter speaks to, um, we see, I would argue, what um, James Cone does argue in The Cross and the Lynching Tree that, you know, black people being shot and killed in the street by police are uh, modern-day lynchings, right? And I guess there is definitely um, not an exact overlap, um, but there is a certain level of correlation with these mass shootings as well, where they're both, um, I would argue, unnecessary deaths um, at the hands of a culture that uh, worships and deifies guns, right? Um, And where the cross comes into play and where I think we can find hope is that the cross tells us, um, at least um, the way I see it, that death does not have the final say over our lives and our existence, um, and particularly how we have to live and how we have to treat each other and live amongst each other. Right. So I, I look at the, that, uh, that cross event, that Good Friday, and uh, seeing how in scripture, all of the disciples and family members of Jesus were feeling um, despair and hopelessness. And then the resurrection happens, and that completely gets flipped around. And the way I reconcile it is that the way I like to see it is the crucifixion was an evil event, just the way um, black people being shot and killed in the street by police are evil events. Uh, the same way these mass shootings that are happening senselessly are evil events, right? Um, But at the same time, I think the hope is that God may not necessitate these evil events happening, but God is so great that these evil um, happenings can't prevent God from still being in communion with us and working through and in spite of this evil to reconcile God's self with us. And I think that's what the ultimate hope is. That's what the hope of the resurrection is and what it speaks to. So no matter how evil um, this world gets and can be, um, no matter how how much suffering is in this world, um, God still has the final say. Thank you, Quadri. That is such a, that, that's so rich for today. As Good Friday is a day that looks like death might win, that mm-hmm. looks like the evils and the society might win, that looks like people like 45 are going to overtake us, that look like guns and mass shootings are going to bring us down. It looks like certain things, but knowing that if we can just hold on and that yeah. we serve a God that is bigger than any and everything that we could ever imagine, then there is a hope. Um, and Friday lets us know that Sunday is still coming. Um, even though what it looks like right now, we can sit in it, we can assess it, we can address it, but hold on because Sunday is still going to come. And so with that, Quadri, we're so grateful that you joined us once again. Um, You are definitely, you know, a bow tie that we value. You are going to be and you already are one of the greatest voices of our time and our generation. We are looking forward to just seeing what you're going to do and what's going to come through you and your scholarship and your preaching and your teaching. And we're just so grateful. And so, Quadri, if you don't mind, could you just let people know how they can get in contact with you if they want to reach you? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I Well, first of all, thank you again for having me on one of my favorite podcasts with two of my favorite people. I've really enjoyed this. Um, and, you know, I can't wait to keep listening to this episode and future episodes as well. Um, anyone can reach me. The best social media platform to reach me, I would probably say, is Facebook. Uh, you can um, type in my name. I'm Quadri Harris, Q-A-D-R-Y-H-A-R-R-I-S. Um, right on Facebook, you can look me up. I'm also on Instagram as the Modern Duke Ellington, which is also um, the blog that I have as well that's also associated with my Instagram account. So you can reach me on Facebook at Quadri Harris, Q-A-D-R-Y-H-A-R-R-I-S, and on Instagram, the modern underscore Duke underscore Ellington. Fabulous. Thank you so much for being on the show, Quadri, and for being one of our bow ties. We so always love hearing your voice, and thanks for supporting the podcast. And, of course, remember to avoid the clip-on bow tie. Absolutely, absolutely. Anything less would be uncivilized. All right, y'all. So one more thing. You know, we have to be consistent and do our petty pearl. And, you know, last year we recorded a Just Two Pearls episode, and it was about purpose, and it came out literally on Portia, my co-host's birthday. And so we were able to celebrate her birthday, talk about how awesome she is, yay, yay, yay. But, y'all, the way the calendar is set up this year is so petty. We recorded a show and released it the week before Portia's birthday, and now this episode is coming out the week after Portia's birthday. So all I want to say is I think it's petty that on the podcast today it is not Portia's birthday, and so if you have not gotten the chance to wish Portia a happy birthday, I know you want to do it, and she will still accept your good wishes six days late, seven days late, whenever they come in. So don't be petty. Head on over to her Instagram at Portionality, or you can drop her a line at just two pearls on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and let her know that she should have a very happy birthday. Um, best wishes for the coming year. Blessings for the coming year. And um, if you've been 28 before, um, you know, give her some advice. Like, what should she do in year 28? What's so exciting about being 28? So, y'all, show her some pearly love. Don't be petty. Show some pearly love. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at just 2 pearls. And you can email us at adventures at just2pearls.com. And remember, cultivate the pearl within you.